Today's episode is brought to you by Stream by AlphaSense, an expert interview transcript library that integrates AI-generated call summaries and NLP search technology so their clients can quickly pinpoint the most critical insights. Start your free trial at www.streamrg.co backslash PMC. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.co slash PMC. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. Thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. Do me a quick favor. If you like what you hear at Planet Microcap, please take two seconds and give us five stars on Spotify or Apple. This helps with the search engine so that more folks can also discover and engage with all things microcaps. We are now one week away from the start of the Planet Microcap Showcase, taking place in Las Vegas at the Horseshoe Hotel and Casino on April 25 through 27, 2023. We have amazing lineups of keynotes, speakers, sponsors, presenting companies. You name it, we have it all. If you want to go to a conference that is truly a microcosm of our community, and actually, especially what with how things are in microcaps right now, you're not going to want to miss this event. This is the one to go to. There's nothing else. There's still time. Like I said, we're one week away. So if you'd like to join us, participate, have a great time, I'd love to see you in Vegas. Join us by going to www.planetmicrocapshowcase.com to register. See you in Vegas. Now, my guest on the show today is Vijar Kohli, co-founder of Golden Door Asset Management, and is actually a keynote speaker at our upcoming conference, the Planet Microcap Showcase Vegas. He'll be speaking on Wednesday, April 26th at 12.30 p.m. in track one following Chris Tesson's presentation. We titled Vijar's presentation in Vegas, and I quote here, microcaps versus failed startups. The idea for which came from all these failed SPACs in recent years and perhaps they would have been better going public a different way, or in some cases, not at all. Microcap stocks provide a level of transparency, or at least they should and are legally obligated to, that small private venture stage companies just cannot, as well as an opportunity for investors to participate before they get picked up by institutional buyers. Vijar and I talk about this dynamic, the problem with public markets for microcaps, and he provides some especially hot takes that you'll have to tune in to hear. So thank you again for tuning in to the Planet Microcap podcast, and please enjoy my conversation with Vijar Kohli. Vijar, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing, man? Absolute pleasure. Nice to meet you, Bob. Nice to see you again. How's it going? Absolutely, man. No, we're just uh, good to see you. Uh, we're, I'm, firstly, I want to start off by saying we're extremely excited to have you to, to keynote uh, doing a short presentation in Vegas on Wednesday, April 26th. Uh, humble you know, humble marketing, you know, thing, uh, plug right now, you know, but, but we're excited. About, yeah. We're yeah. planning microcap showcase yeah, in yeah. Vegas, April 25th to 27th. But uh, we're really excited about that. You know, I mean, I think what we were going to do for that, for the, for that presentation was kind of like 
your strategy, how you're how you're seeing things right now in microcaps. I mean, maybe we could give like a short overview of what you're thinking for that for that presentation. Then we'll dig in some, uh, some yeah other timely topics. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we'll hold it for a later later piece of the uh, interview. But well, I want to talk about something about microcaps versus um, failed startups. Mm, uh, because you know there's a uh, we'll talk about though i think we're going to kind of go into the crowdfunding or like the area of capital raising where people forget there's like a there's a blurred line between venture capital you know where they raise a hundred million dollars in capital and that microcaps are also worth a hundred million dollars so is there really a difference between these two companies like it's the same comp size company but like what's the difference between a you know late stage startup and a microcap that's also you know 200 million dollars not really a big difference uh, but we'll dive into that later. But yeah, I've been in the space for quite some time. Obviously, these are that's where you know the gems you find the gems. And my initial entrance into this industry or that area of the industry was um, when I started studying Warren Buffett, maybe like sophomore year of college or something. And I was just trying to figure out his strategy. I was like, what is he doing that's so different, so unique? He says some. He has a quote that he's like, "I can make fifty percent a year." He's like famously repeated this quote many times, and I just realized him and Charlie Munger used to read the pink sheets, the daily pink sheets. They would literally get the journal mailed to them, and that's technically microcaps, right? There are these small companies. They have a lot of illiquidity. There, there used to be cigar butts, and then you kind of like. It doesn't matter who you are. You're just trying to make a return. And that's the area of the market where you can make the highest rate of return or there's like misinformation in the market pricing. Man, I, I love all of that. Um, that's, I think, I, I think a lot of people can listening in can definitely relate to, uh, you know, how they got their start as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, from your perspective, by the way, I love this topic for <laughs> the keynote presentation, man, that is going to be so sick. And honestly, what's crazy, not not to give too much away, because I want to save some of that for the keynote and also we'll come to your, back to your background in a little bit. But um, I just did an interview with uh, John Petrides that I'm, I'm, I'm recording this on April 10th and I'm putting that interview out either tomorrow or, or the next day, whatever. And um, we were talking about this idea of like, you know, just how it's been kind of fantasy camp right yeah <laughs> for the last 10 years with zero interest rates you know for whatever yeah. reason i'm not here to i'm not yeah. that but like this is what it's been you know yeah. and just been basically quote unquote free money for and yeah. and and a lot of startups ask themselves like well why do i need to be public you know why do i need to access capital markets i don't really need to do that when you know i could just go to venture capital or you know private capital and i'm good and we'll just wait until my company's worth way more than it is today even if i haven't sold one friggin' thing you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah and so it's it's really fascinating this is a very fascinating thing to get into i mean yeah. I'm sure, without giving too much away from your from the topic but like yeah, yeah. Know, it, it's just it's just there's so much there yeah so uh we can go into you know my background more but you know we kind of mentioned this thing about low interest rate zero interest rate environment i think i want to touch on that a little bit because what's happening or what has happened it's changed in the last three to four months is that all these companies that raise money at zero interest rate environments they just kind of just said we could just grow and we're just going to fund growth at the certain rate of return it just has to be above zero and that was fine and fantastic for a long period of time but what people didn't realize is that all this capital has shifted towards the startup space, which is private private capital. 
And what happens, what people don't realize about market marketplaces is that when you have private capital, they're like six investors or let's say 30 people on the cap table. And it's like inflating the arbitrary like evaluations of the market cap. And they just say it's worth $600 million because they sold so many shares. But when you shift it and take a company public, uh, like uh, microcap, all of a sudden there are a thousand investors and they're providing daily liquidity. And they're saying it's not worth 600 million, it's worth 250 million. Or maybe it's worth more, or you need to you know, provide really good financials and provide a lot of clarity. So it's really interesting that in the last seven to 10 years, there was a development of like the Jobs Act, crowdfunding, all these things saying that we have to make uh, we have to make startup investing accessible to the retail investor. And in my mind, I'm like, startup investing, no, it's small businesses that you want to make accessible. And that's already exists in like OTCs, pink sheets, um, not even nano caps, micro caps, anything below two billion. The reality is that it takes a lot of work to understand what a company like below a billion dollars is doing because it's like a very different monster than like Apple that generates a billion dollars probably in like, you know, every three days in revenue. You know, it's interesting because I, my first question I was thinking, you know, when we were starting off with all this was like, I mean, as a result of now where we're at, let's say, let's say, the, let's say things turn. Okay. Soft landing on recession, looking at maybe 12 to 18 months, soft landing on recession, maybe rates stay about the same for a little bit. Do you think now more private companies now are going to look to go public earlier in their life cycles? I think it's really a question of, uh, what their capital sources. So I don't think they're going to change. Uh, I think someone on Twitter mentioned this to me yesterday, and he's trying to argue that, you know, all these SPACs have failed for the last 24 months. And I said, do you realize that most of the SPACs were venture backed startups? You know, they just, they just, it was a bad business, bad business model doesn't make it a good investment. In fact, it was a bad business investment. So it just failed went to the public markets. And I think the reality is that these startups, all these companies that were that were in the last vintage two two three years, they're just not going to have great business models. So it doesn't matter if they're going to go public or not. That doesn't mean that this current vintage 2023 2024, they're probably going to be better businesses, and they're just going to be more profitable. They're going to be more attractive. The hope is the problem when they go public is that uh, the cost of compliance is so high, which so is usually high. the which the legal stuff. You're like. What do you want to do in this space? You actually want to figure out how the government can start reduce that barrier because you actually want more companies to go public. And you want more because the reality is in the last 20 years, the all the public companies have like, you know, gone down by like 80% because so many of them have gone private. You know, the reverse of what you're saying. And I think yeah. more of them should go public, which is exactly what you're saying. I think they should. I think there's just the hurdle rate is just too expensive, unfortunately, because of so many other legal issues. That's the, that's the part that I just don't know what will change, right? Because, you know, when this, I mean, this has been a problem forever. And that's why, you know, like uh, other exchanges like the venture in Canada or even Australia got a boom is that, you know, private companies are like, all right, well, it's kind of ridiculous to go public in the U.S. unless, you know, there's something with all the fees and everything that's involved. Like, why not go to Canada? You know, they have a very, very uh, friendly uh, microcap uh, ecosystem. Um, same yeah. thing in, in Australia. Um, and I just don't know when the US will that that will change, right? I mean, you know, OTC is for for all intents and purposes, you know, does the trick. But yeah, it's one of those things that it's just it's so annoying. Like we always like it's a topic that we've been talking about literally for like 
I think the last six years, you know? Yeah. It's, I, it's just, I, yeah. I, I don't know how they're going to handle it. I don't think the recipe or uh, the solution is to have multiple exchanges. I think someone, I think it was Andreessen Horowitz or someone had, um, maybe it was David Einhorn too. They like, created the long-term stock exchange, the LTCC yeah. or something like that. Yep. And I was like, I got it. You don't want to pay high fees to ICE and NYSC and NASDAQ. But the reality is they've consolidated. The reality is there should only be one marketplace and you kind of like go through different brokers and that's kind of happening. That's how it used to happen back in the day. But there used to be multiple exchanges, be like commodities are here, options are there, OTC is there. And we don't really, I don't, it's so global. It's, it's, it's kind of weird when you talk to someone in London, Canada, or a foreign country, they kind of know what the U S markets are like, but I really have no idea what's happening in the Japanese markets. And people already look to us for liquidity. That's exactly why New York exists because it has like very deep capital markets, meaning a $10 million company can raise money uh, as well as a $10 billion business. Like it's just a question of who you're going for the liquidity or who your investor base is. 100%. Yeah, no, it's a topic. It's a, it's one of those things I, I've talked to so many colleagues where, you know, they think when you think about microcaps, it's like, oh, there's some, there's le way less names than there was before. But it, I mean, one, the space is definitely not going away. I still think that there's going to be new IPOs, companies going public much earlier on in their life cycles. It's just it, the question always ends up, ends up being is like, when will the US change in order to yeah. create a real venture exchange because like i said with otc like most it's usually most companies are cross-listing right they're not yeah. direct listing on otc they're doing yeah yeah or, or 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 it's companies that are waiting to you know maybe they're maybe they're already foreign listed and they're like yeah we have a pink sheet but we're gonna wait until we're ready for nasdaq to like go full steam ahead you know it's it's yeah i think the the real hurdle it's two-sided hurdle, but the one side is that the SEC and the compliance, like they have all these compliance, like, like you got to do this, you got to do that, you got to do this, uh, and it's expensive. And then on the flip side is most companies don't have great financial reporting, meaning they don't have the team. It's not that they can't do it. It's just like you need to have a very, like if you have a Fortune 500 CFO, that's a very qualified person. They probably are making seven, dollars $800,000 a year in salary because they're doing a lot of work. Versus somebody who has a $50 million business, they probably have five people plus an extension of their payables and receivables. Their like core financial team, reporting team is so tiny that you're like, they may not have the horsepower to do. And the reality is I, I think comp public companies probably need to do more reporting than quarterly. Uh, and and I think that's a problem that venture that's capital companies. That's a controversial statement right there. I like it. Let's dig yeah, into that I, more. I, actually, I, like I, that. I, can, I, I can go further into that. But the reality no. is, is that the the inverse is that um, these like SPACs and failed venture companies, they don't do any reporting. So like they're like catching yeah. up. They're like once a year, maybe audited, maybe ENY if you're like a nine-figure business. But in reality is you have like a local CPA firm or whatever. And it's just like they don't have good financial reporting. So like when they go public, they're like, we're just losing money. And you're like, no investor wants to invest in a losing, like, that's why those companies, those companies go down 80, 90%. On the flip side, I'm like, if it's a public company and I own the stock and I get like a dividend and I get all this stuff, I was like, at what point in the future will I be able to see daily sales of a business? Like, that's, 
there was probably a time I can go back historically and there was zero reporting, meaning a company like a Coca-Cola or something was like on the exchange and they're just like, you get a certificate and you get a dividend. There's no, like you get a balance sheet item and you, you don't, you get it once a year. You don't get it quarterly. Like quarterly was probably a phenomenon 80 years ago. And they're like, all right, Sarbanes-Oxley 30 years ago. And then they're like, at what point will I start getting almost daily financials in the sense that like, all right, this company's actually doing this much. There's no quarterly estimates anymore. It's just the company's performing or not performing. Every every accounting firm is like salivating at, <laughs> at the thought actually, of what you're saying right now. <laughs> and if, if, you want, if you want to hear something that's like, uh, it's it, it's a take, it's a it's an inverse take or a bad take or a contrarian take, dude. Let's go. We're we're, we're in the think, we're in the take I, we're in the take shop right now. I don't think accounting firms should exist. I don't think lawyers should exist. Oh, go. Let's. Yeah. Okay. All right. I think Why? both of them. Make the case. I think both of them are glitches in the in the system. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, hundred percent. Accounting why, why firms. You, why? So, I studied accounting. I'm very familiar with the I the language of business. The reality is that accounting firms are trying to reconcile or audit information that has a lag in the system. Like they're like something happened yesterday. Something happened 24 hours ago, and that would have been fine 25 years ago before like an Oracle SAP database was up to up and up up and running. And you're like, all right, how does the system work? And then you're like, the internet's like real time. Like I can go in and look at inventory. I can figure out where's where's it in stock. Is it in like Minnesota or is it in Florida? And I'm like, all right, if you can do this real time via like Amazon, their cloud and everything. So at what point do I know? I know daily sales. Like if, I, if you ask any company, they have internal financials, they have external financials. And the accounting firm and the SEC have external financials. You can ask the CFO, they're like, my internal financials look very different from my tax record because I have like deposits being made. I have chargebacks. I have payments being made on the 30th. I have payments being received on the 29th. There's a real cash flow statement happening behind the scenes. And I'm like, if I'm a public shareholder and I own a piece of the company, I would actually like to know that. The reality is that most investors don't understand that there's a gap that like there shouldn't be a surprise because when you hear information like, CEO changes, there was fraud, or something happened to a product, the stock price changes immediately. Like, it's an instant. It doesn't matter what level of a cap you're in, like, you know, small cap, mid cap, micro cap, it, it changes right away. But you don't find out until like, Q4, that, hey, this is the impact, or this is the impairment, or this is the, the positivity. And I'm like, if the price changes on a daily, like liquid, li liquid volume, then I know their sales and I know their cost every single day too. I can really actually figure this out in real time. Like I could, you could, the reality is, is the reason I say accounting firms shouldn't exist is because most of the work they do, a computer can do. It's just the computer's software is not advanced enough to handle all of their workload. And that's the, that's the gap. So that Delta is where they're making all the money. Interesting. I mean, you don't think that there's just, you know, playing devil's advocate because this is, I, I love this take, Veet, Veet. not because I necessarily agree, but hey, who doesn't love a good hot take? Yeah. But, <laughs> but, but I mean, you know, the re, let's look at different industries though, right? Because yeah, there's, there's going to be, you know, we're talking consumer cyclical, you know, maybe what you're saying is more or less, okay, I can, I can see where you're going, but some of these industries, you know, they're, 
you know, it's a, maybe they're selling products or services that, you know, it's uh they sold it, but maybe there's a backlog, you know, there's, it's nice to have that in, intermediary and we're not even including auditing firms because that just, you need, you need to have that in order to, right. you know, for fraud prevention. But I mean, what do you think about it from that perspective too? When you think about the various industries and all the different accounting principles that affect all the different sectors out there? No, I, I think it all comes down to bad software. Mm. And, and the reality is, is that most people, one, aren't software engineers, they're not developers, and they don't understand the trade, meaning good software is transparent, it has a level of like, um, it can communicate with the market, which is what an exchange does. It, it provides real time pricing when they did spot pricing in the 70s and 80s of the oil, uh, oil, specifically spot oil pricing, it boomed, like we deregulated the market and oil industry all these companies just blossomed they started making so much money because instead of saying um they didn't have opaque pricing anymore they're like all right this is the spot price of the world we're going to trade around it this is what's happening in iran this is what's happening in venezuela and this is what's happening in texas so a texas oilman can now make money based on that global trade the same thing with commodity prices that's because the uh the product is fungible meaning corn is the same as Corn in the U.S. is the same as corn in, like, Asia. Money is the same thing. So, like, you're, like, questioning, like, all right, what's the product being moved? And then you're, like, how is it being accounted for? And the reality is that uh, if you're doing everything in, like, an Oracle database for financial statements, that financial statement, that database has to hook up to an exchange. And that is a gap. That's, like, a software gap. Like, you're, like, how do you do it? Oh, well, this company's unique. Well, code is law. The reality, the reason that I had this breakthrough was I realized that like tax code and legal code, the word code is the same thing as programming code. And then I realized like you could literally write programming code online in like a GitHub and you could look at someone's source code. And I was like, I can't read an accounting statement, like a financial statement, like in the same way that I can read like uh, a software code. And I can't figure out which company's doing fraud or not. If I can't validate the information, then there's a, there's a gap like, and I'm, and I'm savvy in terms of the accounting language. I'm like, I can't imagine what a real t retail investor who has zero knowledge of information, like a finance, they, they like, they're trying to guess. They're literally, that's when I look at earnings estimates, the earnings estimates of analysts is like from like, if it's $2 of earnings expected, the estimates are like $4 to like 50 cents because all these analysts are just guessing. And you're just like, why are they guessing? Like they actually don't have any information. That's why they're guessing. So it's really taking, it's just taking, I mean, it, it, even beyond just the take of like, you know, how you feel about accounting firms, the real take is more just in terms of reporting, right? Yeah. Because, yeah, yeah. because it, whether, whether there's accounting firms or not, if you're, if your take is like, there should be more real time um, reporting of, of just let's say services rendered or products being moved, you know, that's, that's where you can really do dig a lot deeper and better understand some yeah. of these businesses. I mean, I yeah. wonder if any company would ever want to go public again, if that were the case though. Right. <laughs> there is like a level of uh, transparency that you're like, how much do I want to disclose or what do you want to disclose? Like, cause when you look at a financial statement, you, there are companies that you're like, are they providing revenue broken down by like line item? Is it like product service? How are they doing cost? 
And some and a lot of companies they do all of them do differently. Sarbanes and Oxley try to like standardize GAAP. And I was like, that's great. That's actually what you want to do. That's like an improvement to financial reporting. The reality is non-GAAP is better because every company has a different different set of financials. Like they're like, I do a lot of two companies in the same industry might be like, I do way more in product versus I, I do a lot more in service. So they calculate their costs differently. There are a lot of things, but you're like, for an investor to look at a financial statement, it may take hours to read that when there are easier ways. I mean, people can look into ChatGPT. You can literally upload like a 10Q, 10K and say, hey, set, tell me what the margins of the last three quarter are supposed to be so I can estimate the next fourth quarter. And you're like, okay, if a computer can start doing this really well, then what are the, like, it's not that accountants and lawyers um, aren't good. They're just doing stuff that's not valuable in the same form. Like they could be doing, they could be solving that problem as opposed to doing the auditing. They could just solve the financial reporting problem. Like they could take themselves out of a job by working in the finance department of a corporation. They'd be way more valuable as opposed to, they have an account, they have an auditor at the IRS, they have an auditor at the accounting firm, they have an auditor internally. Like you have three people doing the job of what probably should be one person managing all the finances of a business. It's very hard. It's not like it's not like it's an easy problem to solve, but I think it's I think it's it's a serious glitch. That is super interesting. You gave me a lot to think about there. <laughs> Um, that's, that's fascinating. But your other hot take was that we didn't need a law lawyers anymore. What that, where's yeah. the, where's the glitch? Same thing. Uh, I've seen this so many times where I'm like, uh, well, actually the best question I asked myself is, uh, if I was on an Island of a hundred people and I was like, who would I want to be on that Island with me by profession? Like I would want a doctor. I want a firefighter. I would want scientists. I want a farmer. Um, I would want a tradesman, like who's creating, like you would actually want a merchant because they could create like a market of like, of, of really of economics. So a marketplace. So you would want people to sell product. I'd be like, would I ever want a lawyer? I'd be like, maybe one. I'd like, would I ever want an accountant? Maybe one. I would never have, if I had one, I would never be like, I, I wish we had 10 more. Like if you had, only had 100 people. And you'd be like, there's a minimum versus a maxima. So you'd be like, all right, lawyers are very simple. You're like, same thing, legal code. It's really hard to read a legal contract. If you're, even if you're a lawyer, they spend hours reading different policies and contracts. And the reality is nothing sinks. And I'll give you an example for the financial services committee. But you're like, they spend so much time going back and forth on paperwork. And like they mark things up because none of their contracts uh, talk to each other. They have to literally say like, I said this in sexual section eight and you said this is in section seven it doesn't match so the the example that i could give is um the u.s financial services committee does a great job of live streaming like what's happening in the market like the svb silicon valley bank bankruptcy the um ftx like they they do this stuff and they talk about hey these are the changes that are happening in the marketplace if you watch the live streams they're like three hours of like a senate hearing or something or the house hearings and they talk about changing the amendments like to specific laws. And I consider myself somewhat savvy. Like I'll look at, I'll be like, all right, what happened to the banking crisis? And they'll introduce a new bill and I cannot read it. Like one, I'm not going to listen to a three hour like live stream. And two, they're making changes in real time. I can't track it. And I was like, if I am um, public, like a public retail investor and I'm trying to track the change in law, I have no idea. Like I have no idea what code is impacting me. 
and I can't figure out who changed it, if they were qualified to change it, whether they're like they're doing it to protect me or to protect the company or to protect the government. I have no idea. And I've noticed they do all these live streams like two, three times a week for, on different finance topics. And I'm like, they keep changing laws. And at a certain point, I'm like, why do you have to be a lawyer to understand legal code? And I was like, that's that's the glitch. Like, you shouldn't be a lawyer. It's, it's, it, that means there's a problem. Like, you shouldn't have a third party to tell you what to do. You should be able to understand it. Yeah, but I mean, sure. Maybe there's there are some people that should be able to understand it. But at the same time, I mean, you know, without without having i guess you call it compliance right if we're talking yeah. public like let's 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 be real. like uh you know without that compliance i mean wouldn't there be more fraud more i mean it all comes for me it all comes back to fraud like if you don't have account if you don't it, yeah, yeah auditing or legal like it all comes down to fraud and sure fraud will still happen at the end of the day because that's just like, right right it, it won't change behavior it won't yeah. change the behavior but at least it does it, it does in some it's supposed to at least you know yeah so i think it all i think it all one it comes down all down to financial reporting um and not just in terms of public companies but in terms of just like having good books and public companies are actually have a requirement of having good books and again even compliance i think it comes down to bad software because one of the great businesses um there are some a lot of actually microcaps that do this that are like they handle the compliance software a regulatory software. It's a very good business, very good investment to be in because the law keeps changing and these companies don't have the resources to say, do I comply with this law? And the reality is good software can do that. So you're like, do I need 30 lawyers or do I need three lawyers? And then at a certain point, you're like, why do I have to hire an external law firm? Like, why do I have to have a senator or someone in the government who's like a law can't like a lawyer, ex-lawyer, a law firm, and then a in-house counsel? You're like, again, there are these three counterparties. You're like, they're all talking about the same thing, but they can almost, there's like a famous quote that I heard about like, um, about an investor from Australia, Kerry Packer is a billionaire media tycoon, um, dressed off succession, like a Rupert Murdoch kind of guy. And he, uh, he was being, um, he was in front of the, their Senate, Australian Senate about media broadcasting. He was in the media business. He was buying something in the cable TV business. And the and the Senate hearing or wherever the the Australian government didn't have the authority to ask him anything about cable TV because it was like going past jurisdictions. And he challenged them and he said, "You don't have the legal capability to do this." And he said, and they're like, "Lawyers have never questioned us." And he said, his famous answer was, "The lawyers are fifty fifty on every idea. You can find a lawyer that says yes to civil liberties. You can find a lawyer that says no." And at that point, it was like. Oh, lawyers don't even agree. They like they're in the business to almost disagree, and that's how they make their money. Wow, there's so much to unpack there. <laughs> there's so much to unpack there. I mean, look at the end of the day, though. I mean, again, playing devil. I, I can't believe I did not expect our conversation to be going to this. This is too good. I, I, I love. <laughs> but at the, but at the end of the day, like when you're CEO of of a business, even CFO. You know, you're there's already so much responsibility that you have in running that business. I mean, yeah. to 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 tack on some of these extra responsibilities uh, that you know maybe you would you know your accounting firm should do 
or your yeah. compliance law firm should do. I mean, that takes you away then from running the business. But I will agree in the sense that, especially in terms of fees, like it, it's just very expensive to be a public company at the end of the day. So any yeah. ideas, like I don't think anybody should be poo-pooing anything that you're saying because at the end of the day, something does need to be done in order to create a better marketplace for companies to look at or at least explore going pump, uh, public earlier in their life cycles and not necessarily vis-a-vis like reggae plus or whatever the heck that was, you know, like yeah. it, it, there, there's something does need to give, whether it's not, I don't know if I, it's necessarily getting rid of all those providers necessarily, <laughs> you know, because I think there's a lot more software that would definitely need to be developed in order for that to even have a chance. Uh, yeah. AI is still yeah, very yeah. young, yeah. but, it, but at the end of the day, it's a step in the right direction of how we should be thinking about this. Yeah, the way I would look at it is uh, I would look at a future at where any company can just go public, meaning they, they just like turn on a switch. They're like, I'm public now. And what does that mean? You basically have flagged yourself. You're like, are my financials up to up to the speed of like a NASDAQ qualified company? No? Okay, fine. You're OTC. If not, you're like in another tier. And you're like, if you want to keep getting up the ranks, you just you know, you don't maybe not spend more, but you just become better at reporting. And you're like, what is and then there's like a gap. If it's like zero reporting is here, and then a hundred percent transparent reporting is here, you're like, where are you in the spectrum? And I think most companies are like somewhere over here because nobody it's so hard. And you're like, if it's such a hard problem, it probably is the answer. It's just it's a question of how to get there. And uh, there's just so many moving parts. So it's like it's not realistic for me to say that it could happen tomorrow. And I'm like, the question is, why isn't it happening? And then that's usually the reason why people make bad investments, why they find, you know, they fall into frauds or like, yeah. when you have a lot, a lot of transparency, it's really hard to commit fraud. That's the reality. That's right. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. This is my hot take now. This is where I think blockchain could be really interesting. Yeah. So I've been in the, the reason I actually know, I was introduced to blockchain in like 2010. And the reason I did was because of uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a markets guy. So like I'm very familiar with how the DTC works. I'm familiar with how exchanges work. And I know how the securities talk to each other. So like there's a lot of things that happen in trade processing. It's like 40 steps. Like after a trade gets executed, there's so many areas of the market that has to get like um, exchanges, brokers, managers, everybody has to basically be, you know, approve that a transaction has happened. And then they basically register it. And you can buy and sell it. When even when you sell it, they do the inverse. Like they have to do the 40 steps again and say, hey, it's been sold. Someone else has bought it. And there are all these steps. And the reality is blockchain is just a ledger. So it's just an accounting ledger. And a true blockchain is actually decentralized, meaning everybody's validating it at every second of the day. That's how you know, like there are nodes in a chain and you're like, all right, okay, 30,000 people have validated this. So I don't need to validate it versus... Um, public companies, let's just say there are a thousand investors and there are a thousand people involved validating the price. Uh, that was the problem I mentioned. Venture capital has like 50 people. Like there's no validation. Like it's just whoever, you know, the flavor of the day says, you know, it's eight, eight, 800 million versus 850 million. And you're like, well, if blockchains are fully transparent, we're probably going to get to a future where they're just going to be fully transparent. That's it. Like zero. That's, that's the end game. Couldn't agree more. Like that's yeah. that. that <laughs> I I I mean, there there 
I know on the public market side, there's been a few uh, firms popping up, some startups and like trying to create digital exchanges, you know, like, because at the end of the day, I mean, I, I think that's probably where most, you know, public markets are going is that, you know, they're, I mean, not that anybody trades paper anymore anyway, but like, <laughs> but ultimately, but ultimately I, I, I mean, it's basically digital exchanges anyway, right? If, yeah. If we're really calling a spade a spade, but I do, I do think that that's where, um, you know, most, most of this is going. It's just a matter of like, okay, well, can you now raise capital with your ABCD token, you know, for your legitimate business, you know? Like, yeah. That, that's yeah. interesting. I, I, I don't know how this was, but you know, between 50s, 60s, 70s, and then 80s, 90s, like there was these changes in the, in the US capital markets where there was a period of time where buying equities, micro caps was not attractive which is why a Buffett and Munger would buy them <clears throat> because there was no such thing as like a mutual fund of this current size and stature, meaning they weren't in, or an index fund, I should say, um, that was buying hundreds of millions of dollars. Hold on, is, is Munger Munger's like adopted stepbrother or something? But oh, you, Munger, yeah, yeah. I, I, was I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, uh, keep flowing. So like in the 50s and 60s, buying equities was not popular. And everybody used to buy fixed income. So being a bond trader or a bond salesman was actually a very attractive job. When Bloomberg was invented, I think in late 70s or something, or late uh, early 80s, spot prices gain, came to market for fixed income products. And then like equity started becoming popular because of a couple other reasons, particularly because um, high interest rates in the junk bond market had like a, this weird exchange traded flow that was like, all right, where's the money going? And then equity started picking up as like the pricing became more attractive. So people could say, all right, I could find out what the price of a stock is. And then they started picking up and then volume, like total volume, like started increasing. And then all these products, the S&P 500, a lot of these like ways to buy stocks became popular. And, and then 90s, it took off and the computers and it just provided so much transparency. And you're like, now people invest in equity. So at what point, like what's the pivoting point of where like people are going to switch from like buying an archaic certificate of a bond and clipping the coupon and receiving a dividend and, or yield. Um, I think it's just going to happen. You just don't know. You're just probably not going to realize it just, it's going to become more convenient. I remember to end like commission free trading. Like I used to pay like 20, 30 bucks to trade. That's for, that yeah. sounds crazy now. Yeah. Right. <laughs> That's wild, man. <laughs> Dude, wow. I, I, again, did not expect us to go down the rabbit hole of all of this. And I'm so that's, that was a lot of fun. Well, um, I, I think it's just pro uh, public companies. That's what I think. Reduce compliance yeah. costs. That's it. Yeah. No, I, and I agree. And I'm not just saying that to be, you know, self-serving, yeah. but it's really just because you want to have as many options, uh, swings at the bat as you can. Right. Yeah. And especially in micro caps, dude, like the, I mean, right now, the it's. I mean, it's kind of like kid in the candy store, kind of right now with everything with how bad it's been in micro caps. So you're, you know, I, I hope every buy side investor is or retail who's listening to this is doing their homework if you're a stock yeah. picker, you know. But at the end of the day, like even during times like these, you just want more swings at the bat because yeah. inevitably one of those, even if it looks, you know, I mean, there's value traps across the board, yeah. or inevitably will, in hindsight, be value traps across the board. <laughs> yeah, you know, my uh, interesting perspective, I, it might be interesting because of myself, because I worked at JP Morgan, and I was in prime brokerage. 
So, you know, I was part of the securities lending. I would see a lot of the trading flow and you'd be like understanding how like money flows back and forth between funds. Like, all right, I have, uh, you know, $800 million with this share. I got to find a borrower to, you know, get a price of like to short the shares, et cetera, et cetera. And you figure out like, all right, how do you leverage shares? I was like, all right, if this is happening, a lot of the problems were a lot of hedge funds didn't want to disclose their positions, but they have to disclose them with 13D filings at a certain point. I was like, I wonder at what point when you buy a position where all the investors of a stock just just be known, like 100% of the cap table, not everybody over 1%, 5% or top 10 holdings. I was like, I wonder at what point you'd be like, all right, um, you know, the top hedge fund owns the stock, like not just BlackRock, but like all the other counterparties that own it. I was like, that's probably not unrealistic either. A company like Issuer Direct, which is a micro cap small business, they do investor relations to a certain degree. They kind of have providing that type of information. And you're like, large companies have investor relations internally. And you're like, at what point we're like, they kind of manage the shareholder relationships. That's what it is, right? So like, I firstly, are you a shareholder of Issue Direct? No, I'm not. I'm just oh, okay. I know the, their names. I mean, I, I know that I know them very well, right? They they are more. I would say they're more of a tool for IR. Oh, yeah, you know, like they don't they don't okay, man, yeah, yeah. they don't manage like shareholder relationships. I mean, they make it easy. They they make the IR representative's job way easier because yeah, yeah. they have the one stop shop. I, sorry, yeah. I apologize. I'm not a shareholder. <laughs> yes, I use their software. I don't want this to sound like a pitch, but like. But just kind of giving you some background, like because I yeah, know, yeah. like that that they're that one stop shop where IR IR and PR professionals go to for conference calls, the press releases, you know, a- anything that they need to do in order to help get the message out there for pubcos. Like that's yeah. what they exist for. Yeah, and I think there is like there that I think is a very important role, and especially internally in like big companies. Coca-Cola. There's other there's yeah. other CRMs though that do like um yeah, yeah, yeah that yeah. that help that help IR professionals. Like there's Iprio, there's um yep. you know there's there's a few others that that help in that sense. Yeah, the most familiar I was with um uh, like the proxy firms. Like there's some form of like if you're a shareholder, you want to get a hold of all the shareholders, or you want to send a message to shareholders, or like you have a brokerage account. Like there's a lot of communication that's happening. Um, it's kind of catching up. Like it's on an email, but it's pretty close to like direct email. Like it's not a direct. And uh, I was like, I wonder what point will you just know everybody? Like I go to shareholder meetings. Like going to uh, obviously planning microcap. Like that's, that's kind of like it's a, it's not a formal shareholder meeting, but it's informal. Like it's casual in the sense that like you get to meet the teams. Yeah, I mean, Vijay, you know, it is funny though. I did like. And, you know, some companies were talking about coming to the conference and some of them can't make it because they have their AGMs out there. I'm like, just do the AGM. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So I've gotten to a ton of them going to one tomorrow (laughs) and I'm like, it's great. Like you'd be surprised you go to these and they're like 30 investors and you know, there are 3000 people on the cap table. So like they, they don't represent the third, the 30 people don't represent everybody, but they're, they're the people that are most interested in the business. Is that for a micro cap or? No, it's, um, which company is it? Uh, it's a it's a mega cap. I'm yeah. forgetting, forgetting the name. Um, no, no, I was gonna say yeah. like thirty people in a room. You tell micro cap some micro caps that there's gonna be thirty people at their AGM. They're like, wow, <laughs> we need to. I guess we need to get a bigger conference room. We were just gonna do it in. I was just gonna do it in the CEO's office. Well, you know, it's I've been <laughs> to so many of them. 
I've been to ones like a large hospital business like years ago. A lot of them hosted in New York. And I think I showed up 15 minutes late and they had finished their shareholder meeting. And like, it must've been a $2 billion business. And I'm like, this is insane. I was like, that means nobody showed up. It was just the management team. Like they just went to lunch. <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, that's, yeah. I mean, it's not just specific to microcap, right? Like there's plenty yeah. of those, you know, multi-billion dollar businesses that are like that. I mean, so for you, man, I mean, kind of taking a step back and you're, you know, now we're, you know, 40 minutes in and now I'm getting to your background, you know, but I mean, what was it that, you know, you mentioned what initially attracted you to microcaps, but what kept you? Yeah, it's really a size. So at the end of the day, I probably started looking at these large companies, just as most people do. They look at like a Coca-Cola, Pepsi, Microsoft. They just look at these big brand names. And at a certain point, you just realize you just don't understand what's happening um, under the under the belly. Like you have no idea. Like Microsoft probably has a, a hundreds of products. You have no idea how they roll up into revenue line items. You have no idea like, what is Salesforce doing or like what is some other, you know, manufacturer doing or Berkshire. Berkshire is probably the best example because they have, I don't know how many businesses, but they have so many things moving on. There's no way to understand what's happening in a macro business like that. But micro caps are single players, like single, like they have a very single focus. They're very like product driven in the sense that, or whatever, they have a singular revenue focus. So you can really figure out what's happening in the business. Um, it's 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 easier it's like that's the way. and then the reality is like if you want to have a voice in a business you want to meet the management team you want to learn from the team you can't go to Berkshire Berkshire's 30,000 50,000 people like you're not going to ever talk to the team you get to hear from the team but you know a small business you could actually call I've called up the CEOs many times and I just said hey what are you doing how are you doing this they do acquisitions they hire new talent um, they're very accessible because they're actually no different from uh, a local hundred million dollar business that's private. Um, in this case, they're just public, so it's interesting. And then once in a while, you do find gems like you know that will probably increase in value. What's what's been your an investing experience in microcaps that would you say you know changed your thinking on microcaps or maybe kind of shaped where you're at today when you when you think about microcaps? Hmm. I think it's probably one, one it's the big one is going to the shareholder meetings that that's probably changed my experience, as I mentioned, because uh, one, they do it in a different style. It's basically one-on-ones. Um, and then you realize you can, you get to know people. And then the reality is these companies are also takeover targets. So when I switched to more private equity stuff, I just realized a lot of these companies were the same stature of what a private equity business was looking at. And they would use these microcaps as comparables. And they'll say, all right, this is the business. I won't name any names, but I'll just say like there are like five of them and they're below $5 billion because the reality is most investors don't have the firepower to buy something over a billion dollars. And if you're a small investor and I was like, if I want to have a large stake in a business or I want to take over or have control in a microcap, that's actually possible. You could have you know, millions of dollars, you could have investors put in a pool of eight figures, and you could have a very big voice of the business. I've seen a lot of these big businesses. And like I said, uh, Buffett used to do this. That's how he took over Berkshire. I just talked to someone two days ago about blue chip stamps, which was like a famous trade for them, where they took over basically a microcap coupon company. 
um, and uh, nobody else was looking at it. It's the reality. Nope, 100%. All right, so I think I think we're there because I, you know, I I just I want to get into some of the stuff that you're talking about for your keynote. I just I we want to leave that for Vegas. So yeah, you know, let let's get some. And you're going to be back on at some point. Like we were having way too much fun here for you not to be a frequent guest, um, yeah. or on like a roundtable or something like that. So you know, parting thoughts, man. You know, we're we're recording this on uh, was today Monday, April 10th. You know, we got Vegas in a couple of weeks. You know, what would you say are are some parting shots, some clo- closing thoughts, I mean, closing takes, you know, on just microcaps in general in advance of the conference coming up, as well as just in, in general looking ahead for 2023? Yeah, I think the most interesting thing that's caught my eye is, uh, which I'll probably talk about uh, during the conference, is uh, the failed SPACs, the recent bankruptcies. How some of these companies have just um they're at their micro cap level they're from 10 million to a couple hundred million at most and they simply don't have the results so you're like if you look at it historically five years ago there were a lot of companies in the micro cap space that were just in that eight nine figure range they didn't catch any traction and then all of a sudden these SPACs came out to market and they were still in the four five three four five hundred million dollar range basically a little bit bigger maybe a little bit smaller and you're like, why would they catch so much momentum? And then they would quickly die. And then retail investors have no idea. They're like, it looks like a hot company. But the reality is a lot of SPACs are companies that couldn't IPO. And microcaps are actually companies that were successful in IPO. They didn't have to take a shortcut in regulatory compliance to go public. Because there's a different strategy to, to, to do that roadshow. And I was like, oh, that's an interesting dichotomy. Like, you're in that same territory, but these venture-backed businesses that are public now are trading differently than companies that were historically always microcap companies and have been around for maybe decades. That's a great place to end it, Vijar. Where can our audience go and find more information on you uh, as well as Golden Door Asset Management? And yeah, give plug away. Yeah, the easiest way to get a hold of me is either through LinkedIn or Twitter, um, at Vijar Kohli on both platforms. Um, probably most active on Twitter, so you could just tweet at me or uh, connect connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty active on all socials, so I'll just get back to anybody. Um, but I love talking about this stuff. Um, obviously, on like bajarcoley.com, I got a ton of ideas that I kind of like run through all the time, and uh, and then I'll be at the conference on the 26th, so you know I get to meet a lot of people in person. Very cool. Well, Vijar, thank you so much for joining me here today. Really do appreciate it. Good luck. Stay safe, and I'll see you in Vegas, man. Sounds good, Rob. Thank, thank you. you. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Podcast.